Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work, the weekly podcast from the American University of Beirut, where we talk with professors and scholars and researchers about the work they're doing, what they're investigating, what they're finding, and what it means for the rest of us. I'm really pleased to have this week Professor Anahid Al-Hardan. She's Assistant Professor of Sociology, and she's working on some exciting research related to South-South relations across the world from around 75 years ago until today and what it all means. Professor Al-Hardan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So you're working on a really exciting project in which you're looking back on the famous Bandung Conference of the uh, uh, Non-Aligned Movement that created the Non-Aligned Movement in 1956 and then later a conference in Cairo a few years later. And uh, So tell us, uh, why are you uh, living in 1956 and 58 and what does this have to do with sociology today? Thank you for that question, Rami. So I am living <laughs> in the 50s and 60s because I believe that the those two decades that preceded that superseded, sorry, World War II were filled with hope for hope and rea- and possibilities for a different for a different world. And many of these, as we know, weren't realized. But uh, still, the opening that those two decolonization decades provided are fascinating. And that's why I'm revisiting these. Now, why would a sociology professor be invested in that kind of historical approach um, to understanding the world today? Uh, As a sociologist um, and as a kind of humanities and theoretically oriented sociologist, you know, we try to make sense of the world. Uh, we try to generate social theory to make sense of the world. And my inclination is that if we go back to the 50s and 60s and try to understand the sense-making of the world of these anti-colonial activists of the decolonization era, we can actually generate a very different way to understand the world today by looking at the opportunities, the possibilities, the convergences, the divergences between the different activists, movements, and leaders that were involved and invested in building a different world that was made possible as a result of uh, World War II and the collapse of the former empires. And that ultimately, of course, was not realized. But I, I do feel that these two decades in particular provide us with a fascinating terrain for a relevant social theory for today, based on these kind of South-South conversations and a reimagination of, of our place in the world, in the past, and in the present. Mm. The uh, movement back then was really quite extensive in terms of political contacts, culture, uh, youth movements, women's movements. Uh, there, there was a lot of interaction across uh, the South, uh, Africa, the Middle East, the Arab world, uh, Asia, and maybe other parts of the world. Tell us what, what you see as the most dynamic and uh, significant dimensions of what happened uh, in that period from 56 and over the next two decades? So I think the most significant dimension of those two decades is that although um, states, and particularly Egypt, with the establishment of the Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization in 1957, enabled these arenas for these various activists, um, whether, as you said, they were you know, youth activists, women activists, anti-colonial activists, uh, anti-capitalist activists, and so forth, 
to come together. What was most significant was that these very arenas were beyond this uh, status control. So although the possibility was enabled by kind of top-down, you know, creation of these spaces, um, these spaces themselves, an investigation into the ways in which these activists interacted with each other, the speeches they gave in their meetings, the, the networks they forged, the publications that came about. This, I think, is the most significant in terms of trying to retrace what came out of this period to understand what happened then and the kind of political imaginary and the possibilities that were mm. taking place. And ultimately, in order to kind of understand, for me at least, what I think is important, the unrealized why this movement really um, did not was not able to realize its um, its political aspirations and what this means for today for our region and one of the interesting dimensions of that moment was the creation of the that came out of these uh, meetings the non-aligned movement with India, Egypt, and, and others, uh, Algeria, and others around the world. D what what do you think happened that ultimately did not allow the process of South-South and non-aligned movements to succeed? Was it just the strength of Northern imperialism or what? Well, I mean, I think um, the capitalist world uh, was indeed a, an important factor in, in sabotaging this movement. I mean, it just recently I was reading about the anti-colonial uh, Moroccan nationalist activist Mahdi Ben Barke, who really becomes the, you know, the connection between the African-Asian anti-colonial movement and the tricontinental movement and, and the conference he establishes in Havana before he is disappeared in Paris and dies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's essentially basically kidnapped by French police, um, tortured by Moroccan officers and uh, doused in acid by Israeli intelligence officers. So there was a real, wow. you know, I give you this example to tell you that there was a real, um, you know, interest in sabotage in destroying this movement by the capitalist world. But there were also inter-South-South um, realpolitik maneuvers going on. I mean, although the, you know, the image presented to us in Bandung is a united African-Asian world, this was never really the case. And, you know, of course, there was part of African-Asia aligned to the, to the capitalist world and to the communist world. And ultimately, the Indian and the Chinese split was a huge split in the movement. And also, you know, the fact that the movement was state-based and state-centric, I think, ultimately played a huge role in its downfall. Because once these regimes became something which they were not initially set up to be as, in, you know, they were radical revolutionary regimes that then really, some of them then increasingly become something where they're actually um, stamping out dissent and so forth. Or in the case of, you know, Egypt, for example, as soon as, soon as um, Jamal Abdel Nasser dies, because the movement attached itself to him as a person, it kind of, you know, we no longer, it no longer has significant place. The movement really falls into disarray. So these are some of the issues, mm -hmm. um, I think. 
that addresses your question. Mm. There's so many interesting dimensions of this I want to discuss with you. One of them is that this was a movement that was really top-down, as you mentioned, that leaders got together and said, we really uh, need to do this, and they benefited themselves, uh, and they benefited by working together. But people-to-people contacts were initiated uh, in many arenas, conferences, uh, publications, etc., statements. Uh, but w- what's the lesson you draw from this in terms of today when people are trying to work together uh, across the South uh, for their common good, that the people-to-people approach, solidarity at the grassroots and community level versus uh, top-heavy leaders getting together. And I'm particularly interested in the issue that's uh, with us very much these days, which is uh, Palestine and the BDS movement and Black Lives Matter and women's uh, equal rights around the world. These are global movements that have immense support at the community and grassroots level um, and are trying to to make connections, but we don't know if they're going to succeed or not. Mm. Yeah, thank you for this really uh, important point or series of points you're raising. So, I mean, I do think one of the important lessons that can be drawn from the decolonization era is that is that you know these kind of networks and possibilities are only enabled through the involvement of state financing um, and money and so mm-hmm. forth. But yet, ultimately, this could also lead to the downfall of these movements, precisely for the reasons you mentioned, which is you know state yes. interference uh, and and so forth, and then of course state interests, um, which may you know be contrary to the interests of the actual activists involved. So I think for to, in terms of today, and if we if we just talk about the Palestinian example, which is you know which is the example I probably know best. You know, grassroots movements like the boycott, divestment, sanctions movements are, are are important, but because ultimately there needs to be some form of <laughs> of official or of a kind of Palestinian national anti-colonial body with which it mm-hmm. coordinates, its impact, its efficacy is also limited. So it's a kind of catch twenty two situation in which you do need some form of uh, official formal involvement to affect real change. Because, you know, ultimately for the BDS movement, you do, you know, calling for BDS worldwide is all great, but then what about who is your Palestinian interlocutor for a lot of these global activists? But then again, with that said, being mindful that once these movements attach themselves to state, that can also ultimately be their their downfall. Right. Or it's possible that if you do get really dynamic community-led, people-to-people, grassroots, organic solidarity across borders for an issue, whether it's climate change, Palestine, Black Lives Matter, whatever it may be, that that in itself could spawn uh, new leaderships in the South. That's a possibility, yes. But, I mean, again, just to talk talk about Palestine, we haven't really seen that since mm-hmm. the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement took off in um, during the second intifada, um, what we have seen is is a, is a movement that has been at the forefront of the Palestinian struggle for liberation and colonialism, but we haven't really seen it kind of give way to a, a representative anti-colonial Palestinian leadership that mm-hmm. will ultimately push aside the current, you know, uh, Palestinian Authority Oslo Israel created leadership that has been 
you know, part of the problem in Palestine, not the solution. Uh, one of the dimensions of your research is that you're trying to bring together several scholars in different countries in Africa, the United States, Asia, here, um, in Beirut. Uh, can you explain a little bit your attempt to make this a transnational collective study? Yeah, so th theoretically, in terms of the kind of thinkers that, that I'm looking at and my research team is looking at, I mean, you know, we have a tendency in this part of the world and most of the global south and the so-called post-colonial world to really look to the global north when we're generating these kind of conversations. So mm -hmm. in this particular research project, and as a South-South collaboration with our partners in Ghana and South Africa and so forth, what we want to do is we want to shift the terrain of who we are in conversation with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's relevant for people in this part of the world to revisit the works of, you know, radical African leaders and thinkers like Nkrumah or Nereri and so forth. And also, and in learning with these South thinkers as part of the South conversation, which existed here during the 50s and 60s, but, you know, is, is no longer part of our, our, our language, mm -hmm. is also to be working with scholars from the global South, you know, and to be engaged in these conversations, because overwhelmingly the conversation still tends to be a North-South conversation for various reasons. So it's, it's, it kind of impacts both the theoretical work and the empirical work we're trying to generate, but the actual institutional collaboration that we've set up through our Afro-Asian Futures Past Research Program at AUB. I know that when you started this uh, a couple of years ago, you were hoping to get a gathering together at AUB. Are you still trying now that soon people will be traveling a little bit more? Are you still trying to physically bring together scholars from different parts of the world? Yes, we very much hope to be able to do that. Um, we still have another, you know, a, a couple of years on our program uh, and, and of our funding, and we still would like to very much bring back our public programming in person to campus. And should public travel, should travel, you know, be enabled um, within the next year or so, we definitely would like to at least have our final conference in person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the fascinating dimensions of this is something that is uh, in the archives at, at the library, uh, the main library at AUB, which is the journal Lotus, uh, which was established in Cairo in 1968, and <clears throat> you called it a flagship uh, a trilingual Arabic, English, and French journal. Can you tell us a little bit about that as a symbol, possibly, of the possibilities that might be there that would push... Uh, more logically for collaboration in narrow sectors like culture or women or sports or youth or whatever, rather than try to bring all the South uh, together. What does the Lotus experience tell us? And are you going through Lotus and examining it carefully to go back to those days? So the Lotus Journal was established by the Afro-Asian Writers Organization, which was part of the Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization. It was the writer's mm -hmm. wing of the anti-colonial movement. As, as you mentioned, it was established in Cairo, but then it moved to Beirut, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was housed in the PLO um, center. And then once the PLO is, is evacuated from here, it leaves with them. And in terms of the contents of the journal, it's very interesting because, you know, the writers who were mostly anti-colonial activists and leaders of the era, mm -hmm. as well as writers close to these movements, are really engaged in a conversation in which they're not only trying to kind of revive their their languages and their literatures, but they're also thinking about seriously the way people in the global south talk to each other. 
Mm -hmm. uh, what language do we use, for example? So it's no coincidence that the writers and the, the leaders and the activists choose, um, you know, uh, Arabic as as the non, in addition to English and French, which they have to settle in. But there's also this additional language that's not the language of the European colonizers, and um, so that's one aspect. Uh, the second aspect is that. In our research program, we have a colleague in the Department of English who is really working on the, the literary aspect of the movement. So within our research program, we have three tracks. One is in social theory, which is what I am working on. And we have one in literature, and then we have one in political theory, which is what our co uh, colleagues in Ghana and South Africa are working on. And also closely related to this, I just wanted to mention that we are also in the moment at the moment, trying to build a special collection in the university libraries, which builds on the Lotus collection, but which expands beyond Lotus, mm -hmm. and that looks at the and that tries to kind of position our library as a place to come and do research on the African Asian anti-colonial movement. So we're trying to gather all the material published by the African Asian um, uh, people solidarity organization there, and I think mm -hmm. ultimately through these materials. And through, you know, generating this kind of conversation for future research, researchers can choose to focus on, on all these aspects, on whatever of these aspects you mentioned they'd like to. So if, if you're interested in, one is interested in literature, one can pursue the literary question, the, the question of language, of translation. If one is interested in, in the youth movements, there was the youth wing to the organization, mm -hmm. women issues, or indeed like me. Um, you know, if you're if if one is interested in the theoretical production of this movement through these materials and how these activists and thinkers make sense of the world, that's there too. So it's a very fertile ground for further uh, and future research. And hopefully, this is research which we can position AUB as as a pioneer in, yeah. given our unique location. Well, th there's also the advantage that's already there at the um, main library at AUB. We have the library of the late Sadallah Wanous, the Syrian playwright. We have the papers of Anthony Shadid, the Arab-American prize-winning journalist. And there's other collections like that uh, that are tr uh, people are trying to collect so that it's possible you can then transcend that Bandung moment of uh, the non-line movement and look at the contemporary world the last 20-25 years and you see in all these two people I mentioned and others this incredible cross-fertilization across borders and ideologies and, and empathies and concerns and solidarities so there's a huge potential to, to look at uh, some of these issues. Yes, I, I agree with you. And this is actually, um, you know, these are kind of some of the conversations we've been having with the library, which is, you know, if we begin with uh, a special collection, a special post-colonial research collection, which focuses on the Afro-Asian People Solidarity Organization, that this could be the beginning. And it would be the beginning to something um, to something more uh, in terms of then trying to build, you know, trying to collect literature, that is, is, is not just the literature of the organization or of the right. activists or of the meetings, but actually if people engage in the struggles, novels, um, studies right. and so forth, I mean, it has a lot of potential. Mm. We only have a few minutes left. So to get back to the, to the main uh, point of your work, which is this dynamic between South-South solidarity on the one hand and the continued pressure from the global north, whether it's capitalist or imperialist or colonial or whatever it might be, or a combination. Are we living through a period, if we take the Arab world today, where the north-south 
dynamics have been replaced by a series of regional um, powers, Israel, Turkey, Iran, uh, maybe some of the Arab ones, the UAE, Saudi Arabia possibly, who are trying to impose their uh, views on other people and creating linkages of dependency, economic and political and military, with weaker parties inside the Arab world is the is the chessboard of ideological interaction or confrontation or competition changing now more into a regional one than a global one? Um, I, I actually think that, you know, in a very ironic and sad way, <laughs> the kind of uh, schisms, ideological schisms that existed during the Nasserist eras between, you know, were, were ultimately along global lines um, that, that have replicated themselves today, but we're, we're not talking about the first world and the second world anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the camp that's with the capitalist world and the camp that's with the, with the, you know, with, with the Soviets, we're talking mm-hmm. about those who are, you know, the camps that are with the capitalist world and the camps that are anti-imperialist. Um, right. And these kind of, these kind of geopolitical alliances still, still, still exist in the Arab world today and have, you know, obviously fractured along different lines mm-hmm. um, and are being reconfigured because of the massive American intervention in the region, which has reordered entire states uh, or destroyed states in the case of Iraq, for example, or the Libyan or the bombing of Libya and so forth, right. but but these you know these kind of first second world um, previously first second world uh, geopolitical dynamics still exist today. It's just that the second world doesn't exist, and <laughs> right. and and we are really talking about forces opposed to um, imperialism in the region versus you know those who are not only hosting American military bases, but also, um, you know, supporting the, the Israeli settler colonialism in Palestine, uh, supporting right. neoliberal economic agendas and so forth. Right. Well, that raises a question for a future program. We don't have time, but the issue of the durability and the viability or the failure of many actual states, countries in the Arab world. Some are strong and solid, others are falling apart. Um, and this raises all kinds of uh, new problems. Uh, last uh, question, uh, Anahid, the uh, future now, you've done this work now for a year or two, and um, wh- how are you progressing in terms of what are your next steps and what will you end up with at the end of this project? We are hoping to end up with a series of publications by the end of this project, whether on um, the theoretical aspect, uh, the theoretical production of this movement, or the literary production, or the political pan-Africanist uh, production. And we also hope to be able to raise further funds in order to continue this program, um, mm-hmm. and also um, to kind of continue this the South-South uh, research and, to, and, and networks um, in this in this part of the world. And um, mm-hmm. and also, you know, in AUB recently, the, the, the Palestine Land Studies Center was established. Right. Palestine is still the issue. It <laughs> was the yes. issue in the 1950s and 1960s. And of course. It's still the issue today and as we talk. And, and this is um, one possible interesting center to be working on and supporting in terms of ex- ex- the, examining the Palestine Land Studies question, but reconfiguring it in terms of, South-South relations and the global South and the past and the present of Palestine imagined transnationally in that way. Right. Well, that's pretty exciting. And uh, 
helps us understand why sociologists are studying the 1950s. So thank you so much, uh, Professor Anahid Al-Hardan from the Sociology Department. It's been great having you, and um, good luck and good work uh, for the years ahead. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the audience for being with us. This is Rami Khouri, and this has been another episode of Professors at Work, in which we talk to AUB scholars about the research they're doing and what they're finding and why it matters to the rest of us. Join us again next week at the same time. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.